Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast entitled Requiem for Scotland at the World Cup, The Last Romantics. Scottish football history is fascinating from day one. I mean, effectively Scotland invented the concept of passing. They effectively moulded the modern attacking game in the early 20th century. The, the English interpretation of football was very much, you dribbled, you even got tackled, you fell over, and then the nearest person on your team would then pick up the ball and try and get it further up the field. It was Scotland and the way how they interpreted the game, which was actually, rather than it being this very singular, very individualistic game, actually it's better to pass between you. So in other words, you you pass from the back to the middle to the front and you have positions and effectively, you know, the first sort of intimation of formations. So as a result, Scottish players are the first who are brought into England. They're brought into the professional game. I mean, one of the interesting bits about it is, is that part of the reason why the passing was so prevalent in Scotland and in the north of England was actually that the players tended to be smaller than the southern players who were generally in a taller, stronger and in better physical health. So for them, running and dribbling and the very physical side of that type of play was actually quite natural to them where the northern teams you know, with a lot of Scottish players and the Scottish teams didn't really have that advantage. They had to be more savvy. And so... And then you have the, the Hibs team of the 50s who entered the first European Cup, got through to the semi-finals. You have you know, Dundee in the early 60s getting to the semi-finals. You have the Lisbon Lions, the Celtic team in 1967, all of whom all the players were grew up in Glasgow. It really was Glasgow Celtic versus Inter Milan in the final. It wasn't the best team in Scotland. It was the best 11 players in Glasgow at that time. They'd all grown up in the city. I think the, I think the 11th player was maybe a bus ride away from the city centre of Glasgow. You, know, you even have the Dundee United team in the 80s. You have all of these great moments, great players, you know, great managers. And yet at the World Cup, we all know that the story. And that story is always that Scotland get knocked out in the first round. They've never made the latter stages of any tournament, you know, from you know, the 50s to the present day. But there's always, you know, and there's an element of hubris. The Scots turn up, you know, confident, cocky, that they're going, this, this year's going to be the tournament that they're going to make an impact, and they're home before the postcards. And yet, for me, looking into this and researching this podcast... A lot of that is based on myth. You know, the myth of the, the, the teams that they lost to were minnows. That, and that all of these campaigns really sort of just blur into one. That Scotland tend to be the gallant losers. They always seem to pull a result out of the hat when it's too late. For, for me, Scotland at the World Cup is a combination of bad luck. There's tragedy. There's poor management at board level, coach level, 
and in some ways an inability to, to forge a practical footballing philosophy that works in tournament play. Every Scotland mistake at a World Cup is punished. Every single time. There's never a time when they have the luck of the draw. The ball always bounces wrong. It always bounces to the opposition. The deflection always goes in. They always find themselves behind the eight ball. In some ways, you have a situation where they tend to sort of defend badly and they fail to score enough to cover for that. They always play lovely football in the midfield, but when it gets into the penalty box, they fall over themselves. They trip over. It always falls onto the player's left foot instead of his right foot. They tend to bring out the best in their opponents. There's always a sense that they are in a group of death. Classic example is the 86 World Cup. Even even with the scheduling, they always tend to get, you know, if they get Brazil, it's always in the first or second game. It's never the third game when sort of Brazil really qualified and you know, their foot's off the gas, they've rested a couple of players. And whenever they're in a situation where they're the favourites going into the match, they're always under pressure. And a lot of that is external pressure. The pressure that, ah, you're playing someone we don't really know much about. It may be their first tournament. So they're not only under pressure to win, they're under pressure to win and win well. I suppose the best way of starting is to really go back to the beginning of Scotland's history in the World Cup. And I think nothing explains it better in terms of the mismanagement at board level than really their first three tournaments. Now, technically, they qualify in 54 and 58. That's their first two actual tournaments where Scotland rock up. They actually qualify in 50, but effectively the, the qualification was that the top two teams in the home nation, so that is England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, the top two would qualify, so the winners and the runners-up. And Scotland before the tournament, potentially in an act of hubris or you know, a sense of fair play decide, we're only going to go if we finish first. They lose to England, they finish second. So officially FIFA say, yep, you're into the tournament in Brazil, you know, if you want. And they refuse. They ignore pleas by their players, they even ignore pleas by the England captain Billy Wright. Says, look, you've qualified, you've earned this, go to the World Cup. I don't usually use quotes, but I think there's this great one from Brian Glanville, the sports writer, and he just says it's baffling insularity and peak, and there's just no other better way of putting it. It's a terrible decision. No, they weren't probably going to win the World Cup in 1950, but it's the experience of going there, seeing how it works, the travel arrangements. So fine, but they don't go. For England, they don't do particularly well in that World Cup, but it's valuable experience. So we get to 54, they've qualified, and then it's just an absolute farce from, from beginning to end. Rangers refused to, to release their players as the club's on a tour of America at the time. Celtic only released three players. You, you're allowed a squad of 22, and 22 players are selected by the manager. Scotland decide to only take 13 players. Presumably, from what I've read, it seems to be a suggestion that it was, you know, to cut down on travel costs. But the FA take, the, the Scottish FA take a bunch of their officials and their wives. 
And this World Cup wasn't the one that was in Brazil in 50. It wasn't the 62 World Cup in Chile. This is in Switzerland, which just is baffling. It's Scotland to Switzerland. It is not a huge amount of distance. You know, there's so many different ways you could have got sponsorship. Surely there was some businessman in Scotland at the time who was willing to throw some coin at this so they could take a full squad. The kit's too heavy. So in other words, it's Switzerland in the middle of the summer, so it's hot, and they're wearing effectively what would now be considered rugby shirts. So they lose their first game 1-0 to a pretty good, tactically astute Austria. And so the manager resigns before their second game, just purely on the basis that it's poor preparation. He's only got 13 players. The kit doesn't work. They, it's a complete joke. And in their second game, they lose to the world champion Uruguay team 7-0. So it is a complete disaster. So we now get to 58. And this is an even better Scotland team. And at this time, they actually are allowed to take a full squad of players, which is you know, beneficial. So the, the first game they drew with Yugoslavia. And that's, this is a really good Yugoslavian team. Uh, before the tournament, they'd beaten England 5-0. And so what they do is, just in the first sort of instance of professionalism, they send a couple of members of their squad to scout their next opponent, Uruguay. Uh, sorry, Paraguay. And they come back and their report is basically that they're fit, they're good, but they're rough. In other words, they're your classic Latin American outfit. They are going to be tough. The manager has options in terms of hard men. You've got Dave Mackay, Tommy Doherty, Sammy Bird. They have options if they want to sort of go toe-to-toe, if they're going to need a bit of physicality. But the manager omits those, those players, selects a fairly lightweight attack, and they lose 3-2. Now, and this is where there's the first sort of element of personal tragedy gets in. The manager... Was supposed to be Matt Busby, the legendary Manchester United manager. But he wasn't present at the finals because he was still recovering in hospital from his injury stemming from the Munich air disaster. So effectively it was the assistant slash trainer that was managing him. So they lose the game 3-2 against Paraguay. And in France, they against France in their last group game, they miss a penalty. So that they get knocked out, having only drawn one, lost a couple of games. And in the 60s, they, they have a couple of very close, sort of, in terms of qualification. In 62, they were 2-1 up in the dying minutes of their last qualifying game against Czechoslovakia. Uh, the Czechs equalise, and this was a fairly rugged Czechoslovakian team, but a fantastically great attacking Scot- Scotland team. And in extra time, they get beaten 4-2. But this is the same Czechoslovakian team that get to the final in 1962. We finally get to 1974, and this is really the first truly great Scotland team. They qualify for the World Cup in West Germany, over, and England don't qualify. Now, in their first game, they play Zaire, who were, it's their first appearance at a tournament, they were the first sub-Saharan African country to qualify for the World Cup. They were the 1974 African Cup of Nations winners, so they were the best team at that time for the whole continent of Africa. 
And in the first game, Scotland win 2-0. And they miss a few chances. The Zaire goalkeeper has a particularly good game. And, and if you watch the highlights, you can find them on YouTube. You can see the Zaire team have some pace on the break. They create a couple of chances. In the end, it's a pretty solid result. On a different day, you know, maybe Scotland could have won that 3-4-0. But there isn't a, a, an absolutely huge gulf between the two teams. There's a sense that one you know, has the advantages of playing in you know, Europe and better facilities, but there's still a there's still talent there. You can see that they're not minnows in the sense that we've now created in our mind. And I'm going to sort of go into that in, in a bit more detail later in the podcast. So in their se- in their second and third games, they're playing Yugoslavia and Brazil and Brazil are the world champions and it's a and if you again if you watch the highlights on YouTube you know the Brazilians sort of shade it in terms of their positional play they tend to be moving the ball a bit better but at the same time a lot of their efforts are long range and David Harvey the Leeds United goalkeeper has a really great game Scotland have a few chances you know it's a fairly in terms of chances a lot of them are long range efforts but the Brazilian goalkeeper makes a few good saves, but he constantly spills the ball. One time he spills the ball, and it sort of deflects off the Scotland player and just goes sort of inches wide. It's a game that could have gone either way. And against Yugoslavia, Scotland scored a good goal, and they concede their only goal of the tournament. Now, the problem is, is that they get knocked out on goal difference, because in the second game, Zaire completely compl- collapsed. Effectively, their manager was Yugoslavian, and as a result, because they were playing Yugoslavia, they decided to, the powers that be in the FA, which was a huge entourage of people do, you know, who were linked with the Maboto regime, sit there and sideline the manager, make some changes to the team, which weren't beneficial at all, and Yugoslavia get batter Zaire 9-0. So, of course, obviously, Yugoslavia had the huge advantage in terms of goal difference. And I'm going to go into a bit further detail in terms of whenever there's a, a battering at the World Cup. So, probably your three most famous examples would be in, in the modern World Cup, so really kind of post-66, is you have Zaire losing 9-0 to Yugoslavia. You have 82 El Salvador losing 10-1 to Hungary, and in the contemporary World Cups, you have 2002, where Saudi Arabia lose 8-0 to, to Germany. You could mention the, the semi-final between Brazil and Germany, but I think that's a slightly different thing, in terms of where there's a minnow and an outfit that absolutely hammers them. And it's very easy to look on it and say, well... Those teams didn't deserve to be in the World Cup. They were minnows. They were hapless. But there's actually there's always a, a deeper story to it, which make it more interesting and it really gives, which really sheds lights on it. I, I think you look at it in a different way once you fully understand the sort of background of it. I've given you kind of a few hints of what happened to Zaire, which meant that really, the Scotland game against Zaire was them at their peak. And that everything after that game in that tournament, it, it just completely fell apart. 
And it's not really Scotland's fault that they saw Zaire at their best. Had they played Zaire second, I'm sure they would have put six, seven, eight, nine goals past them. It was that kind of situation. So really, with 74, they're unlucky. You know, they could have easily beaten Brazil. On a different day, they could have beaten you know, Yugoslavia. You know, you've had a situation where Harvey's had a fantastic tournament. They played some nice stuff. They haven't embarrassed themselves in any way, shape or form. Which then leads on into 78. 78, again, England haven't qualified. You know, you have this fantastic Scottish team. You've got Graham Souness. We have won the European Cup with Liverpool. You had Kenny Dalglish, who'd had success with Liverpool and with Celtic. You, know, you had Joe Jordan, who would end up playing for AC Milan. You had quality all throughout that team. Yeah, they'd be in England in 77. That's the famous one where the Scottish fans run onto the field at Wembley and break the goalposts, you know, and cut up the Wembley turf and take it back to Scotland. And this is where, which comes back to where every single Scotland mistake is punished. And where it's the, the combination of bad luck, poor management, you know, and an, in, and an inability to, to really adapt to the tournament. In their first game, they're playing Peru. Now, Peru were the 1975 Copper America winners. Now, this isn't one of those situations, let's say, comparable to uh, Denmark in 92 in the Euros and Greece in the 2004 Euros, where an outfit gets lucky, hits, you know, strikes gold for a couple of weeks and wins the tournament. The 75 Copper America was, wasn't actually a standalone tournament. It wasn't three or four weeks in a specific set country. It was far more done in sort of Champions League style. So there was group stages, home and away, and two-legged ties. So by the time that you know Peru had got through and beaten Brazil in the semi-finals, where I think there'd been three games, so there'd been home leg, away leg, and then I think they had, it was still tied, didn't have away goals, so they played at a neutral venue. So this was a, a fantastic Peru side, probably the greatest Peru team of all time. And But we didn't know that much. So if you're talking sort of contemporary, what did the people at the time know? Very little. There was no sort of highlights. It would be something that would probably be in the back of like a world soccer magazine, but it's not something that people in this country and in Scotland, in the UK in general, would have known a huge amount about. And there's kind of one moment. So... They hire Ali McLeod. Now, he's become, in history, I suppose, a form of a joke character. The classic example of, you know, Scotland arrogance. You know, he rocks up to, you know, he'd had some success at Air. He'd then had some success at Aberdeen. He'd won the League Cup. He'd got them up the league. And... He gets given the opportunity, but he's the second choice. They originally want Jock Steen, who is the legendary Celtic manager. He led them to nine in a row, won the European Cup in 1967, but he turns it down. So he's kind of caught in this sort of trap that he's not hugely experienced. In his playing career, that had quite a bit of success at Blackburn, but he wasn't someone who travelled a huge amount in the world, apparently. Uh, before he'd taken the Scotland job, he'd only ever once left the UK, and that was for a small football youth football tournament in Yugoslavia. So he's fairly parochial. 
but he's almost sort of trapped in this moment where he may never get given the opportunity to have this to take this job again, but he's a bit inexperienced. But he decides, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take this you know, chance. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. And he gets them to qualify. They play some great football. But he's not a tactical manager. In a way, he's kind of got that sort of that strain of Kevin Keegan. The idea is that he's going, he's a motivator. That he's going to create an atmosphere of success and you know, really pump the players up and they're going to perform. So he gets his opportunity and quite a few of the man- European managers fly out to Latin America to watch Peru play. So apparently the BBC send a camera crew to see Ali McLeod with all of the at the airport in Latin America to see this game. To you know even have a quick word to say what he thinks of them, but McLeod refuses to go, says he has a prior social engagement, so he hasn't seen them live. And it goes into the first game and Scotland take the lead, Peru equalised, and Scotland have a penalty. This is their sort of the sliding doors moment of the 78 World Cup campaign for Scotland. They bury this 2-1, they're expected to win. You know, even you know, Renus Michaels, the legendary Dutch coach, believed that Scotland had a chance. You know, they were sort of nine to one. They were you know, dark horses. They had enough talent. Could they be the one that really kicked on in this tournament? They miss it. And there's two well, the world two of the World Cup great goals get scored by Peru. It's a fantastic long range shot goes straight into the top corner. And there's this free kick. Again, it's something that you should YouTube. It's n- I'm never going to do it justice. But all it is, is it's a free kick. And you traditionally think, oh, it's going in that corner. And then, you know, he's going to curve it in. And instead he uses his instep and bends it round the other side into the top corner. It's, it's unstoppable. It's a fantastic bit of skill. Not only that he had the placement and the power. It, it's just a brilliant goal. But they've lost 3-1. Willie Johnson, the winger, gets sent home for failing a drug drugs test. There's a sense, you know, that the squad has some issues with drinking, some unprofessional behaviour. You have players criticising the manager in public. And then they go to play their second game against Iran. Again, we, retrospectively, people have deemed them minnows. And really, a lot of the idea of World Cup minnows comes from the mid-90s. When the when the Euros went from eight teams to sixteen teams, when in the ninety eight World Cup, which went up to thirty two teams, and as a result, what you had was you had more from you know Af- more teams from Africa, more teams from the Asian Football Federation, and some of those teams were good, some of those teams were poor. There was always going to be a set for a couple of tournaments where there was going to be some weaker teams in it. So what we've now done, a lot of football fans have done, is to take some of those memories of those teams, the teams that turned up, were knocked out within the first week, and didn't score, got beaten fairly easily, and therefore, retrospectively, all of the team, all of those first few African and Asian teams were then put into that bag of being, oh, they were hopeless, when actually they weren't. The Zaire team were good. They weren't, you know, they obviously most of their players weren't playing in Europe. They didn't have, you know, they weren't the greatest football team known to man. 
but they had talent. They weren't idiots. They'd had to do beat enough good teams to get there in the first place. They were the best at that time in their continent. And the same thing for Iran. You know, Iran had won the won the Asian Cup in 68, 72 and 76. They'd conceded three goals in their 12 qualifying matches. They were defensively a pretty solid outfit. And the Scots make it worse on themselves. They don't scout Iran when they're at the tournament. So basically they put in a fairly poor performance. You know, there's some bad defending and bad goalkeeping for the Iran equaliser. But in the and this is where it comes down to. So you've had the underperformance. You know, the Scotland team coming into that second game, the defeat against Peru had been a hammer blow. You know, really what McLeod was banking on was they'd get a good result against Peru. They'd get a great result against Iran. And effectively they'd all would be pretty much qualified before they'd even touched the Dutch who'd got through to the 74 World Cup final. That would just be a dead rubber. That would be just a chance for Scotland to go out there and match themselves up against, you know, at that time, you know, it, it was a Dutch team that in the first their first two games didn't pull up any trees. They didn't have Johan Cruyff. There was a sense that this team wasn't quite at the same level as they were in 74. But as a result, because of the player being sent home, the squad drinking, they just don't perform well. Yes, they were 1-0 up, but they concede an equaliser. Because at this point, effectively, effectively some of the, the tactical issues they had. In other words, they had Masson and Bruce Rioch as their centre midfield pair. They'd helped get Scotland to qualify for the World Cup, but they probably were just past their prime. And they had Ingram Souness, who just won the European Cup, as I've said, with Liverpool, who was a young up-and-coming player. You had Archie Gemmell. They were probably the two centre midfielders, along with Asa Hartford, that McLeod should have placed. It was misplaced loyalty to his captain, and so you have poor management. You have the underperformance, and then you have bad luck. In the last minute, Joe Jordan hits the foot of the post with a header. So how many times when looking at England and other teams do you get where they played a terrible game in the group stages but luck it out there's a deflection late on and they get the result and history then kind of whitewashes it in the end it was the grit and determination against Plucky Oppo that they then found a way at the death but they don't they draw that game then it all comes down to the final game against Holland they have to win by three clear goals. At this point, they finally put in Souness and Gemmel, and they have a worldie of a game. They go 1-0 down, and they score three unanswered goals. You know, Souness wins a penalty, Dalglish gets a goal, and then Archie Gemmel scores one of the great World Cup goals. Again, YouTube it. They, he just dances around. I mean, eventually they even turned it into a ballet. It's that beautiful. He scores a wonder goal. And they're one goal away from you know, knocking out Holland and qualifying for the World Cup. Second phase. And then you get the Dutch goal at the other end. And Johnny Rep spanks one in from 30 yards. Even he's admitted in interviews afterwards that he just really closed his eyes and hit that ball as hard as humanly possible. Flies into the top corner. 
I mean, for all of the mistakes that they made at the 78 World Cup, for all of McLeod's problems in not being the best tactical manager, they were victims of some absolute wonder goals. You know, at least three of the goals they conceded. Even the Iranian goal had some quality to it. Which really starts to create the, the sort of Scotland myth. It misunderstands who they played. So they get knocked out, they, they really miss out qualification by two goals. And it sort of puts it into that mix of the, the hubris of McLeod. But their intrinsic weakness. No matter all the great players they had on the field during that game and their great performance, there's an intrinsic weakness. It's always a little bit too little, too late. Which I think is sort of fundamentally unfair in many respects. So again, you've had a situation where really for two World Cups in a row, they've missed out on goal difference. You know, the, the 74 outfit I, I think were fairly blameless. I think the 78 outfit made their own problems. But still, the you know even in the, the, the Dutch game, they have a couple of goals that are ruled out for fairly spurious reasons. On a different day, it could have easily... You know, you, it took a moment of genius you know, from Rep. You know, kind of in that depth of knowing that if the Dutch didn't get that goal, if they didn't do something of great genius, they were probably going to get knocked out. The, the momentum was all with Scotland. Which then leads us on to... 1982 in Spain. Again, they qualify. And their first game, they're playing New Zealand. Again, New Zealand first time qualifying. And it's the sins of the father game. So in other words, they all remember 74. They all remember the Zaire game. They all know that in a tough group where they're playing you know, Brazil and the USSR, and it's a good Soviet side, they need to put a huge amount of goals past New Zealand. They need to be in the absolute box seat with regards to goal difference. So they go 3-0 up, but they're still kicking on. They're still desperate to get more goals. They need to, you know, they're almost trying to score 10 goals, 11 goals. They're trying to put ridiculous numbers on this side because everyone's perception of New Zealanders, New Zealand play rugby, New Zealand play cricket. They are not a footballing nation. They don't have that Footballing pedigree, they're not well known. And so as a result, they leave some gaps at the back. They're a little bit sloppy, and they concede a couple of goals for 3-2. But even if you look into it a bit deeper, you think that the New Zealand manager, who was an Englishman, at half-time rips into them, says, go out there, you know, play fearlessly. And the two goals they score are quite good goals. Yes, there's some slack Scotland defending, but even then, Scotland still then, Archibald comes off the bench, gets a couple of goals, 5-2. Maybe it's not the perfect result, but it's still, they won 5-2, they won their first game. You know, they put up a, try and put up a fight against a very good, you know, Brazil 82, one of the better teams in World Cup history, even though they don't win. They play some beautiful football. It's kind of the last truly Brazilian side. You know, from that point onwards, it, they get far more... It's far less philosophical. It's far more about actually getting the result than it is about just playing the sort of purity of great Brazilian, traditional great Brazilian tournament football. So it kind of leads them into their final game against the Soviets. They kind of, they need to win to get through. And 
So as a result, they've effectively they're behind the eight ball. So in that game, they draw two all, and it's one of the saddest sort of moments. It's because they're chasing the game, they're having to leave gaps at the back. There's a long ball over the top. The two Scotland centre halves go for it. They collide with each other, and it just puts the Soviet player clean through, gets the goal. So they're two one down with few. Yeah, and that's in the sort of eighty third minute. In the 86th minute, Graham Sunes gets an equaliser. And so, again, they're just one goal away from qualifying. If they get that win, they're through. Draw two all. Again, they've missed out on goal difference. And again, there's an, an element of bad luck. You know, maybe had they defended a bit tighter against New Zealand. But you can understand their desire to put goals past them. You know, you know you've had that situation with Zaire where you needed, you know, Weight of goals was going to be, you know, a key factor. And then here on to 1986. And again, this is where tragedy comes through. Though they qualify against Wales in a really tight game. With a few minutes to go, they're, they're not going to qualify. They get a late goal. And just as everyone's celebrating the players, the fans, the manager, Jock Steen, who's finally taken on the job, has a heart attack and passes away. So his assistant... A man you may have heard of, Alex Ferguson, takes on the job for the finals as the manager. And they get put in a, an absolute group of death. You know, one of the great Denmark teams of all time. The eventual finalists in West Germany and Uruguay, who are always streetwise. Who always have, they have, usually have two or three deep, really talented players and eight hard men. And then, you know, they lose their first two games narrowly against the West Germany. They score a good goal, Jordan Strachan, and lose against Denmark. And in their final game, they're playing Uruguay in Mexico. It's hot. It's not really, you know, ideal conditions for Scotland. But within the first few minutes, there's an absolutely filthy tackle. Again, it's well worth a YouTube from the Uruguayan player. Takes out, you know, I think it's Gordon Strachan. And the ref, unexpectedly, even if you listen to the commentary, the commentator is really expecting a yellow. But this is where football was slowly but surely starting to change. Hands out of red. So, yeah, the advantages with Scotland and, it, and some of the tackles that you see even from the few minutes of highlights were cynical from Uruguay. They decided that they were just going to get the draw. They weren't really that interested in getting the win. They were going to block him out. You know, in fact, almost the red card just gave them the excuse that they needed to defend in numbers. And Scotland played some lovely stuff. But they're, again, with the bad luck, the chances always fall to the wrong player. They didn't quite have that cutting edge that they needed to get the result against dogged opposition. In the midfield, they play some lovely stuff. But the chances, and even the, the sort of guilty chances they do get, they don't put them away. Which then sort of brings us on to the last two finals that Scotland have qualified for, 90 and 98. In 1990, they qualify over France. And this was a period of time where France had some fantastic players. I mean, a lot of those players involved in the French squad were part of the Marseille team that won the European Cup in 93. You know, you've got Cantona, you've got you know, players like Ginola, you know, Papin. So it's an achievement. I mean, the point is, is that probably from, I'd say, maybe 78 to 86 was really when the Scotland teams were at their best. Probably maybe, I'd say, somewhere between 78. Or you can make an argument for 74, but I think 78 
it's kind of the best Scotland team they ever had. And there was still quite a large amount of quality in terms of players like Strachan in 82 and 86. By 90, it's starting, the decline is starting to settle in. It's still a great achievement. Any time Scotland qualify for a World Cup is a fantastic achievement compared, if you consider the the size of the country, the population in comparison with the other nations they're they're battling against. And so they're, they're, they're kind of put into this interesting group. It's Costa Rica, first time they've qualified from CONCACAF. You've then got Sweden and you've got Brazil. In the first game, they're playing Costa Rica. So naturally, again, the emphasis that people had was they're going to batter Costa Rica. They've then got a chance against the Swedes. And then hopefully by then they've already qualified so that the Brazil game becomes effectively a dead rubber. Costa Rica are one of those... We now know that Costa Rica are good. You know, they get through to the quarterfinals of the World Cup in 2014... You know, we remember Paolo Wanshop. There's this thing, you know, they play skillful, interesting, but we remember 2002 when they play Brazil in the group stage, the eventual champions, Brazil, and it's 5 2. And they just score some fantastic goals. They, it was an open, it was a real throwback World Cup game with two teams that weren't that bothered about defending. This was before Brazil really tightened up for the sort of second round onwards, went at each other, and 5 2 was a fabulous game. But this time we don't know that. And in the end, Scotland have the majority of the chance. They miss a couple of sitters. The Costa Rican goalkeeper has an absolutely stunning game. And Costa Rica get one on the break. You know, Scotland put probably too many people forward. There's an overlap. And it's quite a skillful goal with some nice touches. Although you could probably maybe criticise Jim Layton being done at the, the near post. So they lose. And again, it's... And this is what what saddens me a little bit, is that it just then, oh, once again, Scotland have lost to a minnow. But in the second game, they recover. You know, they have a good win against Sweden. And this was the Sweden team, although they get knocked out in the group stage in this tournament, but they had success at Euro 92. They finished, you know, third in World Cup 94. They're a side on the up. Much in the same way you could say about France in the end. By Euro 96, they're in the semis. By World Cup 98, the world champions. By 2000, they're the world reigning world and European champions. Which then again leaves you into this final group game against Brazil. It's nil-nil. could go either way. And there's a shot. Leighton fumbles it. But it fumbles perfectly to the nearest Brazilian player who kind of it's quite a nice finish you know he takes it well it's kind of quite a narrow angle and it's knocked them out again so again it's slightly unlucky you know on a different day probably more often than not they'd have got that equaliser against Costa Rica if they'd taken their chances but they've been knocked out again Um, and I suppose there's, there's some ways that you can almost say that the weight of the past disappointments was, I suppose, starting to weigh them down. A little bit like, you know, when Buffalo, when the Buffalo Bills got to four Super Bowls in a row and lost all four of them. By about the fourth time, there's this impending sense of doom that's really set, settled in. When something goes wrong, it you know, in other words, when Costa Rica go 1-0 up, there, there's really very few off-the-chance times in Scotland's World Cup history where they've really come back from a disappointment. In other words, 
when Iran equalise, they don't get the winner. And really, the only time that they've ever done that was against Holland, and, and that was kind of a different scenario where Scotland could just throw the kitchen sink at it. And it's somewhat unfortunate that, you know, again, they put, you know, in the group, they always t- seem to rock up against the team that just perf- that is lights up the tournament. You know, in 78, you've got Peru, and now in 90, you know, Costa Rica get to the second round unexpectedly. Which then leads us finally to 1998. They've qualified, and they're, again, they're given another really tough group. You know, an excellent Norway team that had you know was had filled with Premier League experience and Brazil who'd got who were the reigning world champions. Even the the other team in the group Morocco were a pretty solid outfit. And again, they get Brazil in the first game, not the third game when Brazil could have gone through. It's the first game, and it's the opening game of the entire tournament. They're not ex- they're expected to turn up and be hammered and just be. Happy to be there. In other words, you have to add some colour. So you've got all the Brazilian fans, the Samba, you know, the team that are favourite for the tournament, and then Scotland, who have got the Tartan army, and, you know, the, you know, the happy losers. And that was what really what that's how it was set. And they, the Scots play really well. You know, they defend pretty well. They show a bit of attack. And the Brazilians are really sort of running out of ideas. Just before half-time, there's a set-piece, goes to the near post, Scotland defend it badly, 1-0 Brazil. Half-time, just before half-time, the kind of the thing that I think everyone then thought, right, second half, Brazil will kick on, they'll put a couple more past Scotland and it'll be game over, night-night Scotland. But they don't. Scotland go up the other end in the second half, get a penalty. John Collins buries that penalty. Almost for the first time ever, Scotland get a penalty in a tournament and actually put it in the net. Game on. And then it's fine, you know, you've now got into the sort of 80th minute. Ten minutes to go. Are Scotland at the Stade de France in the first game of the World Cup going to join the, you know, the Cameroon team in 90 as being the, the, sort of the shock opening coda to the tournament? But, as I said, by the time you get to 98, the Scotland team is, broadly speaking, ageing. They're in their early 30s. It's not a particularly young team. In other words, they're very experienced, but they're starting to tire. And the, the goal that they concede, is, in many ways, it's a heartbreaking goal. It's an own goal. But it's a beautiful ball to the fullback who cuts inside it. It's got a lot of Brazilian flair to it. And had the Brazilian player buried it, it would have been a really good goal. And you can just say, well, Brazil have that in their locker. But it's not. Leighton makes the save. But then it bounces. So the rebound hits Tommy Boyd, the fullback, and then trickles over the line. And Colin Hendry can't quite reach it. But take... If you watch it on YouTube, what you have to understand is that Leighton's in his mid-30s at this point. And Boyd is 32, I think Colin Hendry is 34, 35. They're all just a little bit past their prime. So maybe a younger Leighton would have caught the ball, or it would have had the reflex been slightly sharper, would have pushed it out to the side instead of straight in front. You know, 
whether Boyd would have been in a position to have covered the the run of the fullback had he been a couple of years younger. You know, with Hendry in the line, had it been you know two or three years earlier, would he have just had that last bit of energy to be able to try and clear it off the line? So it's unlucky. You know, the the, the sporting press at the time considered Scotland have been unlucky. You know, the Brazil Brazilians had got out of jail. You know, second game, they get a creditable draw against Norway. You know, they come back, it's a lovely finish for the goal by Craig Burley, and it kind of sets it up for this final game against Morocco. The idea is, win and you, you'll go through. And so again, it's the game where they're narrowly considered favourites. I mean, Morocco have been beaten pretty easily by Brazil, uh, given Norway a bit of a game, but they, you know, in their performances... Yeah, they got through to the second round in Mexico, but hadn't done anything really when they qualified in '94. So again, the expectation, I suppose, from a UK perspective, from Scotland and from England, was you, this is going to be your best chance of qualifying. <sighs> the first goal that Scotland concede, Leighton gets done at his near post. Second goal, he kind of goes, doesn't go out far enough. Palms the ball up in the air, but it doesn't go to the side or in front of him. It sort of loops up and bounces into the back of the net. And at this point, again, you know they're chasing the game. And the Moroccans get a third on the counter attack. And again, this was a really good Moroccan team. Probably, maybe I'd argue the best Moroccan team all time. They played some fantastic stuff. But the point is, is that Norway in the last minute get a dodgy penalty. And they get the win, they go through, and Morocco get knocked out. So does Scotland. And the point is, Scotland in, in, in that tournament, in all three games, created chances. You know, Grodas, the, who was at the time the, who played for Chelsea, played a little bit for Tottenham, he'd had a great game against Scotland. They'd had chances. They, were, you know, it, they didn't deserve a 3-0 loss in that game. And this is the Euros rather than the World Cup, but in the Euros in '96 when they qualified. Again, they get given a group of death. Switzerland, who had done well in the 94 World Cup, England, who are hosting the tournament, and the Netherlands, who had got through to the, court, the semi-finals of the World Cup. And in 98, we get through to the semi-finals. And they get a 0-0 draw against the Netherlands. They get a 1-0 win over Switzerland. So again, defensively, they, they've tightened up. But they don't create huge amounts of chances. But again, they're 1-0 down to England. Middle of the second half, they get a penalty. Gary McAllister misses it. Now, if you actually watch it, the ball just slightly trickles off the penalties, but just as he's taking it. You know, Seaman makes a great save. It sort of bounces a little bit, fortunately, off of his um, elbow. But Scotland had the corner, still game on. And then from that corner, England goes straight up the other end, and Paul Gascoigne scores an absolute worldie by flicking the ball over Colin Mendry's head and belting it past Andy Gorham. And they get knocked out again on, on goal difference because while 4-0 down to England, Patrick Clybert in the last minute kind of nicks one through David Seaman's legs. Again, it's unlucky, it's unfortunate. And I also want to add that I'm not necessarily hammering Jim Layton. You know, he gets credit for making three different finals, nine appearances. He was you know, the best goalkeeper they had. I don't think they had a huge amount of goalkeeping depth during those years, where Andy Gorman was a pretty solid goalkeeper, but I suppose now looking back on it, sort of in totality, 
you know, what the key question is what unites these perceived underdogs that Scotland have lost to in World Cups? You know, with Iran, because we've seen you know an Iran team in '98 that wasn't great. You know, we've seen you know teams like you know Saudi Arabia get battered. Is in the sense that we now think that that team in '78 were no hopers. But the point is, is that to counter that, the the team that qualified out of Asia in '66 World Cup was North Korea who went on to knock out in the group stages Italy and went 3-0 up in the quarterfinal against a really fantastic you know, Portugal team that got to the semi-finals and had Eusebio. They lost 5-3, but the point is, you can't ha- sit there and say that, well, North Korea, who were playing in these Asian Cups in the 60s and 70s, were a pony because they're not. We know they got through to the quarterfinals in England. So Iran, by being the premier side in Asia during that time period, they can't be hopeless. They were a defensively decent outfit. The point was is that they conceded a few. They weren't, you know, they were always going to get knocked out, but they were defensively solid. You know, the goals they conceded, there was four penalties they conceded in the tournament. Two of them against Peru, and I guess the point is is that there's a little bit of a, you know, a Latin bias. In other words, the the home fans would, you know, the fans there would be cheering for Peru over Iran. Same thing with Holland. You got one of the world's most admired teams and the team from Asia that no one knows really is huge amount about. And so there was question marks, you know, a few of them were, were a little bit dodgy, one of them was supposed to be outside of the box. But so as a def- outfit they were defensively a pretty solid outfit. You know, they knew how to defend. You know, when you take Morocco, if you look at the team that they had is that you had one of the stars of the tournament was Mustafa Hadji, Yusuf Chipo, Tahar El Khalij, all of whom had productive Premier League careers. You know, uh, Chipo and Hadji with um, Coventry. Hadji eventually moved on to Villa, Tahar El Khalij at Southampton. You know, you even had Nuradine Neibet, who had an excellent career in Spain for Deportivo La Coruña. You know, he even spent a couple of years at Spurs. One of my favourite Spurs goals, not for the out. Yep, he scored against Arsenal. It was a well-taken sort of half volley. But if you actually watch it, it's when we lost 5-4 to Arsenal, is that he runs into the crowd and everyone's hugging him. And just at, at the corner of the screen, you see this um, guy. And I presume he must have known Nuradine Neighbour. I can only guess. But, you know, he kind of looks um, of Arabic extraction. He's wearing some sunglasses. And he sort of jumps over this dog pile and just kisses Nuradine Neighbour on the cheek. And it's just really bizarre. You just don't, you know, you see people getting, like, players getting mobbed by the fans. You just don't see one of them leaning over and kissing. And Nuradine Nabit seems absolutely fine with it. That's why I can only guess that it was, like, a family member or a friend who was just really excited by seeing, you know, this centre-half bury a goal against Arsenal. But, um... So we now know, and, you know, Morocco were really unlucky to, you know, be basically, in the last minute, Screwed out of the second round of the you know France ninety eight. They were one of the surprise teams of the tournament. You know we've you know, with Costa Rica. We now know with like you know Paolo Bonchop scoring that wonder goal for Derby at Old Trafford. We now know retrospectively that actually North Korea are yeah, sorry Costa Rica are a great football footballing nation. They produce talented players. They play a bright and interesting brand of football. And yet, to an extent, you could argue that Scotland have contributed to these successes. You know, they're too open. You know, they don't have a huge amount of pace at the back. 
you know, you have a, a poor record of having qualified, never having qualified. It gives heart to the oppo. They all you always feel you have a chance against Scotland of yeah, you know, Scotland tripping up. Scotland lacking that kind of killer belief that like the Brazil team in ninety eight has. They know they're not playing well. They know the Scots are doing well. But if they just keep at it, something will go in. Something will happen. I think even England have that to a certain extent when they're playing sort of smaller teams in the World Cup. Eventually someone will do something if we just keep knocking at the door. It's a bit like the Algeria game. Eventually, you know, it was looking like another time in England had blown it, but they just keep knocking at the door and Harry Kane in a couple of minutes to go gets one in. It wasn't beautiful, but they've got the result and that's all that matters. Scotland never really had that moment. Either they played really well, like you know, Sweden or against the Dutch. There's no time when they've skanked it, you know, against either Costa Rica or against Iran, where they haven't played well, but they've just done enough to get the result. So these teams know that they can sit back and they can counter on the break. And that Scotland will, have, will probably, even if they are in the ascendancy, will tend to spurn the chances. And in many ways, because Scotland have this great history of, you know, almost creating, attacking, beautiful football, you know, historically. You know, they've had great managers, great teams, great players. And the fact that they always qualify on merit. They never, they, they've never accidentally got to a World Cup. They've qualified out of tough groups by playing really well over an extended period of time. That's, you know, even with home advantage, they've got results away from home against top teams. So and it's always a, a set against this backdrop of qualifying against the odds. So naturally, when they get to these tournaments, they're not going to sit there and turn up, you know, as if they are a you know a minor moderate team who are just happy to be there, who are just going, you know, like Iran have historically done, just defended in numbers and tried to nick one on the break. You know, it would be seen as a betrayal of Scotland's footballing heritage. So in a way, as a result to their credit. They bring out the best in their opponents to their own peril. So, I'm going to take this sort of moment. I said earlier in the podcast I was going to sort of expand upon, you know, the why there's always a backstory behind the teams that get absolutely annihilated at World Cups. So we'll start with Zaire in in '78. So, the expectation was that. There was a lot of promises made by the Maboto regime, who were an awful regime. He was a despot. And before the, the tournament, he gives them houses and he gives them green VW cars. And there's promise that there will be money paid during the tournament. And there's also an expectation that's possibly a little bit unrealistic, that they'll make a, a solid impact on the tournament. So what happens is, is that the... After they lose to Scotland, and losing 2-0 to a very good Scotland team, so, yeah, sorry, 74, it's, there's nothing to be ashamed of. But things start to kick off. In other words, there's a huge amount of government people surrounding, and cronies of Maboto, there was even supposed to be a witch doctor, and threats were made. And so, by the second game, they had the changes were made, they sidelined the coach, and... As a result, and the money promised to them wasn't being delivered, the squad morale failed and they got battered 9-0 by Yugoslavia. At which point things got very serious, very quickly. 
in the, in the final game, they were told they can't lose anything more than 3-0 or they would be killed when they came back to Zaire. And with the Maboto regime, that was serious. That actually really was a threat. And so can you imagine going into a game where you haven't been given the money you were promised, you know, you were kind of stabbed in the back by your own you know, organisation, your own FA, you know, put you in a position where in that second game they had absolutely no chance. You know, five or six of the team had been pulled out. The changes were made. There was no tactical basis for it. And now suddenly you're playing this world champion Brazil in a game in which if you lose by X number of goals, your life and your family's life is on the line. That's an incredible pressure to put on them. Which then comes to this this moment. So the time I think Zaire was uh, 2-0 down. It's only about sort of 15 minutes to go. Brazil have a sort of free kick midway into the Zaire half. And there's a big wall. And one of the players runs out and just smashes the ball into the crowd. Now at the time... You know, they had there hadn't been many African teams in World Cups. They'd they boycotted the '66 World Cup because they felt it was unfair that it won't give them more more places in qualification. So we were in a situation where people didn't have a great knowledge of African football, African players. Really, you'd had Eusebio, you'd have a couple of Afri- players of African extraction that played for France, maybe in the '50s, but. So at the time, it was considered naivety. That it was simply they you know, didn't know the rules or weren't respecting the rules. In one of the earlier games, one of their players had been sent off for kicking the referee in the backside. The referee actually sent the wrong player off. But it was just within that and the fact that they'd lost 9 up to Yugoslavia. It just looked like a bit of a mess. But now we actually know the backstory was is that the person who got the yellow card and kicking the ball away was doing so to waste time was to try and put the Brazilians off because they would, they, those players at the time thought if we can see one or two more goals, our lives are over. So they lose 3-0 and there's this probably a very eerie sense when they go back to Zaire that they could be murdered. And they were held at the presidential pass for about three or four days where effectively, presumably, the decision was made whether to kill them or not. And they were released, but none of these people... You know, their lives weren't the same afterwards. You know, some of them never played again. You know, a lot of them fell into this kind of poverty. So instead of being heroes, like the first sub-Saharan African team to have ever qualified for the World Cup, you know, and won the African Cup of Nations, instead, they were almost sort of treated in pariahs. In one of the instances, when they kind of look back on it, I think maybe five or ten years ago, one of the players was working as a taxi driver and he was still using the green bw that he'd been given by the government you know for you know qualifying for the world cup and he was still using that car you know and my, my, a lot of those, those players have fallen into poverty one of them ended up living in sort of in abject po- poverty in the um, townships in south africa and it's just a very sad story because actually if you and you watch as I've said, they were actually a pretty solid outfit. They had some flair, they had some pace on the break, and yet they've now become really a punchline. There's only now that we know the whole factor. They're really heroes in a way. It's like even if you take like El Salvador, they lost 10-1 to Hungary, but the actual backstory of it is that they weren't ever in a million years expected to qualify. It's a, bit, a little bit similar to Panama in 2018. 
yeah, they got battered 6-0 by England, but to have qualified over the United States, you've had many more players, better stadiums, better facilities, better absolutely everything. It's not their fault they overperformed to get there. They deserve an immense amount of credit for qualifying in the first place. You know, much in the same way as El Salvador had one professional. You know, they they had this terrible trip. They had sort of three different trips to get to Spain from El Salvador. So it wasn't just one plane, it was three different planes. They even stopped off to play a Brazilian um, club side. Yeah. They only got there three days before the tournament started, before their first game. So FIFA said, here, here's 24 balls. You know, the, the actual match balls that were being used so you can practice. They went missing. So they literally had to ask Hungary, can we borrow a couple of balls in the warm-up so they'd have actually a football to kick around. You know, they, you know, against Hungary they, in their first game, they had kind of suicidal tactics. They were just going to play beautiful football and try and win this game. Which, again, this was a Hungary team that finished above England in qualifying. This was a very good, very tactical Hungary team. And the thing is, even after 27 minutes, they made a sub. Now, if you're getting battered in a game after sort of 15, 20 minutes, generally you take up a striker, put on a midfielder, tighten up. The manager, who was 36 at the time, one of the youngest managers to qualify for the World Cup at that time, put, took off a midfielder and put on a striker. You have to admire it, but obviously, 10-1, yeah, it was suicidal tactics. And a lot of these stories, it's always like you have one bad game and then people tighten up. In other words, you know, that you just... You, you circled the wagons. And in their final two games against a great Belgian team, a great you know, Diego Maradona-led Argentina team, they don't get battered. They perform well. They, and they even create a couple of chances. And they deserve respect. Because, you know, in one of the examples, um, after they lost 10-1, the waiters at the hotel said, look, we'll give you a game just so that you can boost your confidence. And they battered them. And one of the waiters was given uh, an unflattering nickname by the El Salvador players. I imagine it's probably that he, this guy was heavy, but that's my guess. Anyway, he found out about this nickname that he'd been given and confronted them. And there was a bit of a shouting match. And naturally, the manager of the hotel said, well, I'm firing you, you can't be rude to guess. The El Salvador players went on said, we'd go on hunger strike unless you rehire him. And they did. The point is, El Salvador have been wrecked by civil war, by infighting, and, you know, brutal jun junters. The fact that they qualified for the World Cup, over all of these teams in CONCACAF who were better, who had better players, who were professional. The fact is that the two or three of those El Salvador players end up having, you know, football careers in Spain afterwards. You know, I always hate the idea that these, you know, that these two, two or three instances... Which it isn't fair on those players means that every single team that you know from you know Africa and from you know Oceania and from Asia get kind of tarred with these brushes of being hopeless when it's not really accurate. You know there have been teams with since the expansion in ninety six and ninety eight the World Cup and the Euros who haven't been great, but yes. I still like there being 32 teams in the tournament because I think that the World Cup should be open to all. Yes, there will be some teams, you know, from 28 to 32 who aren't particularly great. But there's been so many teams that have come out of nowhere that deserve their opportunity. 
Now, even if you take Saudi Arabia in um, 2002, when they got battered 8-0 by Germany, this was a Germany team that nine months earlier had lost 5-1 to England. They had qualified through the back door. They'd beaten a fairly, you know, a, a Ukraine team that's on the downslope from the heydays of the late 90s under Valery Lubinovsky. And so Saudi Arabia's weakness was set pieces. So they had Carson Yanga, who was six foot four. You had Miroslav Closer, who'd only just broken into the team. And they knew exactly what to do. And they were going to hurt Saudi Arabia. They were going to punish them. They weren't going to stop at five or six. They were going to make a statement and Saudi Arabia were going to be the team to take that punishment. But the point is, the only reason that they had qualified is that Japan and South Korea had already qualified as hosts because you know they were hosting the tournament. So you still had two spaces left, whereby had it been held in Europe or in Latin America or in Australia, they probably wouldn't have been good enough to qualify. What they were were the most experienced team left in the Asian qualifying tournament, because they qualified in 94 where they'd done pretty well, and 98 where they'd done less well. So that's the thing. They were an aging team that were just good enough to qualify. But even then, even afterwards, you know, their last two games against you know an Ireland team that got knocked out on penalties against Spain in the second round, and a particularly you know, talented, you know, Cameroon team. You know, they only lost um one nil to Cameroon and three nil to Ireland. But you know, the the third Ireland goal was in the eighty seventh minute. You know, they have weaknesses, but there's always a backstory to it, which leads us on really in in a way to the the myth of. You know Scotland. You know in terms of their their failures at World Cup, and to an extent, it's almost an English narrative. It's a story that is covered by English newspapers and television at World Cup time in the build up. You go for like oh great World Cup moments, and then you have this story of you know Scotland not qualifying and all of these moments. You know it's too easy to aggregate them all into you know one set of results you know they always you know lose to the you know underachievement they always lose shocks against no mark teams and there's always a decent result but it's usually too little too late it comes it all boils down to you know an archie gemmel montage the win over holland as an outlier and in some respects it, it provides secure especially at the time because england failed to qualify in 74 and 78 and you've almost got this sort of counterfactual reading of it. Imagine had Ali McLeod done his homework. You know, that's a quote from The Guardian. Had he done his homework before the World Cup? Had he been a bit more tactical? Had things gone right? Had the players been a bit more united, a little bit more professional? And Scotland had succeeded in the World Cup. Would that have, in 78, would that have led to a different result in the 1979 referendum? You know, would that positivity of passed on and you know national pride would that have affected the referendum i mean there's always the argument that labor have that had england got further in the 70 world cup that that would have changed the result of the election that once they lost to west germany that then the sort of you know that kind of negativity and sort of national depression you know had an impact on the election that was held a, a little bit later in the year you you have to remember that you know that the Brazil the Peru side were probably that they lost to in seventy were arguably a top ten world side they weren't a 
no marked team by any you know stretch of the imagination. But I suppose the underlying point is is that it almost sort of puts this image that Scotland are better off as part of the UK than as an independent nation. You know that see when they go it alone it fails. You know it's you know badly run. There's a weakness, an intrinsic weakness to them. And so it then means that the, the key role that Scottish players and managers played in English football in the 70s and 80s is almost repackaged as beneficial for Scotland because, see, they were able to you know, help win European Cups, league titles, all the other bits and pieces. But really, it's success that, broadly speaking, is English. So in other words, Liverpool are considered to have won the European Cup as an English side, regardless of the fact that, you know, that the managers, the players in that era were, you know, there was a, a, all, all great English sides of that time period had a Scottish flavour and element to them. So I mean, through this prism, the Tartan army almost, you know, in a, in a slightly, almost an infantilised way as the downtrodden but downtrodden but happy natives. See, they dress up, they show their pride, they drink and they have a good time, and then they lose and go back home before the postcode before the postcodes have before the postcards have arrived. And I think it's interesting at this sort of juncture to really compare the Scottish experience at major tournaments with the Republic of Ireland, with Northern Ireland and, and with Wales. With Republic of Ireland, they have a less storied footballing history. And so there's no onerous sense of onerous sense of tradition. So in other words, they're they're able to play more direct football. You know, the Jack Charlton years. You know, they're able to use qualified players without that being an issue. So, you know, Mick McCarthy, Kevin Coulban, Tony Cascarino, you know, John Aldridge. I mean, a classic example, and I think Tony Cascarino is still in the top 10 for the um, most goals scored for Ireland. And he discovered about halfway through his Republic of Ireland career that he actually wasn't, his grandmother wasn't Irish, which was he was using it for qualification. And he, and he you know, to his credit, went to the Irish FA and said, look, this is a situation I'm technically not qualified to play for the Republic of Ireland. And they said, you know what, Tony? Doesn't matter. Carry on. You're Irish now. You know, it's very much a you know, means to an end. And as a result, they don't play maybe as aesthetically pleasing football. But they're more suited to tournament success. You know, in 90, they get through to the uh, latter stages of the tournament. You know, in 94, they beat, you know... Italy in the group stages. And this is the Italian team that went all the way and lost to the final on Brazil on penalties. You know, they've beaten, you know, they've got through to the latter stages in 2002, even without Roy Keane, their best player. The thing is, is that if you compare the, the sort of quality of football played by the Republic of Ireland and the quality of football played by Scotland, Scotland are a much more interesting team to watch, but they don't get the results. Whereby the Republic of Ireland... They they can play the underdog role a lot easier, you know. That they can they, they still have quality players, you know, Roy Keane, Robbie Keane, but it's far easier for them because 
they can build on the success of Jack Charlton, on Giovanni Trapattoni, on Mick McCarthy. All of those coaches who were fairly pragmatic. They understood the limitations of Ireland and you know, even for the players. In other words, it is far easier narrative for Irish players to go to England and to a lesser extent Scotland as a natural career progression. In other words, you don't stick around in the League of Ireland if you want an international career. You know, whereby for Scottish players it's a lot harder with the old firm, with the spectre of you know, with when you have Champions League football, when you have Europa League football, year on a yearly guaranteed basis. You know, you know if you take Barry Ferguson, you know, Rangers legend, only had a really short spell at Blackburn, and immediately just went straight back to. Rangers. You have Scott Brown with Celtic, and there's always this question mark over: Would he have made it in the Premier League? Would he have improved as a player? But we will never know because he decided, you know, to his credit, he's Celtic through and through. He wants to say it's Celtic. You know, and I suppose with Northern Ireland, with the success they've recently had, the point is, is that in some ways it was easy for them to mould a club side at international level due to their lack of resource. But they still have the inspiration of Spain '82 when Jerry Armstrong scores, and you know, Northern Ireland in their in their first modern World Cup had managed to beat the host nation Spain. It was a great, you know, a shock result. And the problem is is that and obviously with Michael O'Neill, the who you know, really the mastermind of the resurgence of Northern Ireland, having spent so much of his career and living in Scotland, there was always this sense of, well, you know, shouldn't he just go and manage Scotland? Should the F SFA, the Scottish FA, just throw some coin at him and get him to do that? But the thing is, I don't know whether you can sit there and, you know, use Scot the Scottish national team, but they're not in the same position. You, you can't just sit and say, well, we've got 11 players, we have to therefore, you know, try and turn that into a club side at international level, whereby you have, you may not be the most talented but you're the best organised in a way that other international teams are usually a bit mix and match due to injuries and the rest of it. Even if you look at Wales, the advantage Wales have is that they have rugby to, as a way of establishing their national pride. You know, if, if it's domestic English football, the success of Cardiff and Swansea. You know, yeah, they've had a couple of times when they've, you know, got near to tournaments, they have their share of heartbreak, you know, uh, Bowden missing the penalty against Romania, you know, getting through to the playoffs and losing to Russia with a, you know, young team that had, you know, uh, Craig Bellamy, Simon Davies. But the difference, I suppose, with Wales is that they threw increased money into infrastructure and youth development, and a lot of their youth players go through, you know, English academies. It's a, it's again, it's a lot easier to, you know, to go from Wales into an English, you know, like Gareth Bale with Southampton. And you know, with Wales they made that kind of decision that instead of playing the games at the Millennium Stadium, seventy two thousand, which when it was full could be quite intimidating, but if it's half full, so they decided to move to the Cardiff City Stadium, which kind of works is it's you can produce you're guaranteed a sellout you know, it's a club ground. It's kind of got that edge to it. Whereby, you know, with, with Scotland, you have the problem of the sort of dilapidated Hampden Park. You know, if you don't play there, then there's really not a huge amount of use for it. 
you know you have some poor infrastructure at the grassroots you have the current infighting the fractious battles in the, the domestic game yeah by, by wales they have all these young players some interesting coaches and they've now got, they can build on the sort of the Gareth Bale team that got to the you know Euros semi-finals. Whereby I suppose with the contemporary Scots team, they're weighed down by the legacy of the greats. In other words, the contemporary Scotland team will never compare to that golden era of Scottish football, where you had Souness, Dalglish, you know, Harvey, Billy Bremner, all of those you know players, Joe Jordan. You know, Scottish football isn't as strong as it once was. It's never going to be that as you know that productive in terms of managers, in terms of players, as it was in the seventies and to an extent the eighties. But you've also got this level of legacy of failure, whereby the Northern Irish can say we qualify for the Euros. We have the eighty-two World Cup. You know, with Republic of Ireland, they can say, well, look, we've had the qualification under Mick McCarthy, Jack. Charlton, even Giovanni Trapattoni. There's always something to work off of. Whereby with Scotland, it's that that need to have great football, which is their you know their Scottish philosophy. But you've then got a legacy of failure to match it. So in other words, you're never going to be Graham Souness, and you've never qualified. You've and obviously for the last twenty years, having not qualified, and you've actually even when you have got there, you've never got to the second round. You've never had that one signature Scotland team that has gone further. So I can imagine that's the problem. And it's part of the reason what you know, Northern Ireland, Mike O'Neill said, is that the players had been so used to losing that it was quite easy for them to mug off. So in other words, they weren't feeling great. Uh, I'm going to pull out of this squad, I'm not feel, I'm injured. Or if I was going to go there, they'd treat it as a jolly. If they were going away to Spain, great, few days out in the sun, few beers, but we're going to lose anyway. And some of that has got into Scottish football. In other words, the fans are always going to criticise you for not being Graham Souness. And you've also got this weight of all of this failure from sort of 1950 onwards. Of all of these near misses, all of these times where they've got so close, where they've got to playoffs. You know, there was a one time they got through to the Euro playoffs and they were playing Holland. And in the first leg it was at hand and they put up a good fight and it was delicately poised and in the second leg at the Amsterdam Arena they got annihilated 6-0 and it was so and the thing is that obviously Holland have yeah, had a much better much deeper squad and it wasn't their fault that really you know in the draw for the playoffs they'd got such a good team so you can understand why there's always dropouts with the Scotland team there's always a sense that that even if they were to qualify, yeah, there'd be a great deal of joy, but there'd always be the sense of your, you know, because world football's moved on so much since World Cup '98, you know, to be back in in the big time, but from a much weaker standpoint, they really would be considered minnows this time rather than you know previous in the seventies and you know, where they were considered. You know, Dark horses. I mean, part of the reason why you, you have this difficulty with Scottish football philosophy is you do have the Lisbon Lions. You know, the first British winners of a European Cup. And they, they were against a great, you know, Inter Milan team, you know, managed by you know, Helenio Herrera. They'd spent money. They got players from, you know, foreign players, the best players in Italy. And it's unprecedented for essentially a city to provide a European Cup winning team 
that was simultaneously not automatically the dominant part of the national team. You know, if you take Red Star Brow Great winning the European Cup in 91, they made up a decent part of the great Yugoslavian team of the early 90s. You know, with Dynamo Kiev, the successful team in the late 80s was a huge part of the USSR team. And then, you know, under Lobanovsky, in both cases, they were a massive part of Ukraine's, you know, team of the late 90s when Dynamo Kiev got to the semi-finals of the Champions League. You had a situation where, you know, the, some of the best Scotland players weren't playing in Scotland in 1967. So you've got Dave Mackay, you know, Dennis Law, Billy Remner, David Harvey, Peter Lorimer. They were all playing in England. They weren't, you know, you had Ian St. John at Liverpool. You had Jim Baxter, one of the geniuses of Scot- Scottish football, was playing for Rangers. It's, it's an incredible history, but at the same time, it's very difficult to then with the current situation with the poor infrastructure, with you know, the squads not having the depth and maybe the talent they once had, to really reimagine what you know Scottish football you know, at international level needs. You know, it will feel a defeat if you then suddenly t- if you decide to play all of the games at Pitodri when it's cold, wet and miserable and make it as difficult, you know, to really play a kind of underdog role. Because you, you're, in a way, almost discarding this fantastic heart and ingenuity of the Scotland, Scottish football in general, and of the World Cup years. You know, it's a sort of 74 to 98. But again, you do now need a far stronger defensive framework that acknowledges its you know, kind of limited resources. I mean, one of the things that's, that's really interesting when you take sort of Scottish sport as a whole is that there's always it's always tethered to what England are doing. And the point is is that England react better to losing to Scotland than Scotland do to beating England. You know, basically England used Scotland at sport as a yardstick. If you if you draw, if you lose to them, it therefore requires improvement, reform, immediate something has to change. Whereby for almost Scotland, it's a generational peak. It's not a building block to the next stage. It's, we finally beat the English. Brilliant. It's like the, uh, rugby union. We all know what the, how England lose to Scotland at rugby union. It's Murrayfield. It's wet. It's a 5.30 kickoff. Or even quarters of five. It's wet, miserable, raining, driving rain, wind. And, you know, it's a low scoring game. And Scotland just fight it out, and England just don't get get stuck into the game enough. But it doesn't, that's not a building block. In other words, when you get to a World Cup, it's not going to be a bare pit of Murrayfield. It's not going to be in the cold and wet. It's going to be in a neutral venue, and all of those other bits and pieces. So, like, the, if you take the last sort of rugby union, England were 31-0 up at half-time against Scotland. Annihilated them. Scotland come back, nearly win, and England had to get a last-minute try just to just for the tie. But the point is that England then make the changes, Eddie Jones, the coach does, and they go on to the final of the Rugby World Cup, the next Rugby World Cup. They beat the you know, reigning champion All Blacks in the semi-finals. The Scotland international team don't make the quarter-finals of the same tournament. In cricket, England lose a one-off one-day international to Scotland. 
They call up Jofra Archer to improve their bowling unit because they conceded 300-plus to Scotland, even though it's a sort of postage stamp of a ground. They go on to win the World Cup. Now, obviously, with cricket, it's a bit unfortunate Scotland, due to the ICC rules, you know, weren't able to qualify. And they were kind of screwed in, in their own way in the qualification stage. But that's it's still the wider point, is that then Scotland's results since then have been pretty good, but it's not... But it's still, you know, it's not going to be... It's going to be a great moment in Scottish cricket history, but I don't know whether it's going to be a, a sea change, whether it's going to be a profound turning point. I hope it is. I hope they get to the stage where they are qualifying regularly and they have more of a chance. It's it's a fantastic... that You know, it's one of the things that I always love to mention to people, that more people in Scotland play cricket than they do rugby. You know, even if you take football, let's say the in the recent qualification when England drew Scotland, England you know sort of went past Scotland at home fairly easily, and at the end of the season there was the return leg at Hampden Park. You know, England got one nil up. In the last sort of five ten minutes, Scotland score a couple of fantastic free kicks, but and they're two one up with just seconds remaining. And there's a question mark over Joe Hart's positioning, you know, for a couple of the free kicks. And but England go straight up the other end, and with some poor defending in the last seconds, they equalise in stoppage time. It's almost like original sin with Scotland. But the thing is, Scotland don't kick on from that. Even though it's a, it's a really creditable draw, the atmosphere was fantastic. The Scottish fans celebrating. I mean, one of the interesting things if you ever watch the highlights of Harry Kane's last second equaliser is if you look at all the players celebrating, and then in the far corner of the screen you'll see a half-empty whiskey bottle that obviously was just about 30 seconds earlier was going to be finished as a celebration and then was turned into a missile upon that equaliser. It doesn't hit anyone, it just sort of bounces away, but it's it always sticks in my mind, just the pain that that, that equaliser caused. But the point is, is that England dropped Joe Hart and then they reached the World Cup semi-final. Scotland don't qualify, Scotland haven't really kicked on. They've had some decent results, but in their last qualification, didn't get off the ground in any way, shape or form. I mean, even with, sort of, if you take the 99 plus between England and Scotland, you know, England won 2-0 at Hamden, a couple of good Paul Scholes goals, but in the second leg, they lost 1-0 to Scotland. Kind of were lucky that Scotland didn't get that second goal to force extra time. And that was the first inkling that people had that the Kevin Keegan era could fail. That was the sort of the you know the turning point where it was the beginning of the end. In other words, it wasn't a surprise a few months later after you know a fairly poor Euro 2000 that Kevin Keegan was out the door. Even for him, was that knowledge that because they'd had that poor result, something needed to be changed. So, yeah, getting to the uh, conclusion, how does Scotland reimagine its past glories in a way that's going to be help their future? You now you have the great Hibs team of the 50s, Dundee United in the 80s winning at the new camp. You know, you have the Lisbon Lions, you have Archie Gemmell. You know, the, the 67 Scotland team that beat England, you know, who were the world champions. So for that moment, the Scotland, you know, Scottish football fans always argue that they, in 1967, were the world champions. So how can you do, how can you use that to really build for a successful Scottish national team in the future? You know, where you have, you know, the geniuses of, you know, at managerial level, Matt Busby, Shankly, Sir Alex Ferguson... 
I think you have to start by acknowledging the failures. You know, the mistakes of Ali MacLeod, the mistakes of the Scottish FA in the 50s, and some of the battles right now that, that are being fought, you know, for how Scotland should reimagine its future. I mean, I've done a, this is really a companion podcast to one I did a, uh, a couple of years ago about Scottish football and where it should go. And I've always advocated that I think that for Scottish football and for the national team, the best thing to do would be for Rangers and Celtic to move into the Premier League and to then reimagine the Scottish Premier League as a way to get young Scottish players playing football. And to really strengthen the other Scottish teams, get them playing in the Champions League and you know, the Europa League, in a way that's actually, they're likely to have success. Right now, even the successful Aberdeen teams in the last few years haven't really made much of an impact in Europe. It's only really ever ranged and set. They take up so much bandwidth in Scottish football that nobody else really has a long-term chance of success. You know, but also, you, we need to celebrate the great football Scotland have played in World Cups. You know, Joe Jordan's goals, you know, Harvey's goalkeeping, you know, Sunir Strachan, you know, get them all Dalgleish. You know, the purity of the football, that it brought out the best in all Scotland's opponents. You know, give me a, a Scottish football team at the World Cup rather than, you know, n- you know, the recent Northern Ireland team, the recent Republic of Ireland. It was much of, I give respect to both of those teams. They were both fantastic in qualifying. That was a great achievement. There was still a ruggedness. There was still a defensiveness. In other words, you know, Northern Ireland got to the latter stages of the last Euros, but they'd only won one game out of the three at the group stages. And in the end, they lost in the second round to Wales. Their tournament record was played for 1-1, lost 3. It wasn't particularly fantastic. When you compare all of the Scotland teams who were played much better football, who've been screwed by goal difference, by bad luck, by the scheduling... It makes better World Cups for all of us as fans. It's the World Cup at its romantic best. It's two teams from different countries, different philosophies, going at it for the best reasons, for playing, trying to play the best football, rather than dogged defending, trying to, you know, oh, nil-nil, but we might nick one in the last minute for one-nil. You know, all of the all of the attritional games that we've seen in the last few major tournaments. You know, for me, let's all hope that Scotland and the Tartan armies grace international tournaments, you know, again. You know, they bring out the best in tournaments, in terms of the fans, in terms of the football. And in terms of the desire to play the best quality football, to really maintain the tradition Scotland have always had for managerial excellence and footballing excellence and the purity of it. Thank you for listening.